city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. It was a dark, moonless night after 10 p.m. in the small jurisdiction of Kingsburg, Georgia, which is a city off of Highway 40 in the southeast quadrant of the state of Georgia. On patrol that night was Officer Zachariah Presley, a three-year veteran of the Kingsburg Police Department. While on patrol, he had grabbed something to eat for dinner and had pulled into a convenient market that had an attached gas station just to throw away his foodstuffs. While he was there, he spied inside the store a man that he knew by the name of Anthony Green. He watched Anthony exit the store and start to get into a vehicle that was parked adjacent to Officer Presley's. And Officer Presley knew that Green had a suspended driver's license because just two to three months before, he had contacted Green on another case, ran him for wants and warrants and driver's license status and found him to be suspended. And he warned him at that time. Officer Presley didn't say anything to Green at that time, but then observed Green to act furtively, get into the car, and then quickly leave the gas station parking lot, squealing his tires and traveling southbound on the 40 at excessive speed. Officer Presley activated his radar gun and captured Green traveling 56 miles an hour in a posted 35 mile an hour zone. Officer Presley started catching up to Green when Green made a sudden right turn onto a side street that was extremely dark with no ambient light. Presley caught up to Green, activated his lights, and followed him down the street. And as Green sped up, he lost control of his vehicle on a 90-degree turn and crashed into some nearby bushes. Presley was right behind him and stopped his car about 30 feet away. And at that time, and for the first time, observed not only Anthony Green, but another individual bail out of the car. The officer called in an accident and a foot bail and began what was to become a 300-yard foot pursuit down a darkened, moonless street after Mr. Green. But it wasn't over because Green stopped turned around before Officer Presley could get next to him and got back into the car and at that time removed a small dark object just bigger than the fist of his hand and took off again and the pursuit resumed for 300 yards. And Officer Presley pulling out his taser and running after Green and yelling, stop, I'll tase you on a couple of occasions. Both men made another left turn on another darkened side street, and at that time, Officer Presley managed to get up closer to Green because Green was tiring out, and Officer Presley warned one more time and deployed his taser. Simultaneously, with the taser activating, he observed Green to go to the ground. This is all captured on Officer Presley's body cam. Officer Presley believed that he had tased Green, but that was not to be. 
Green wasn't tased at all. And he got up quickly, grabbed Officer Presley in a two-handed leg grab and using a martial arts technique, picked up and flipped Officer Presley backwards onto the asphalt highway. Officer Presley's head struck the asphalt and he was momentarily dazed. A hand-to-hand -hand combat fight ensued between Officer Presley and Anthony Green, with Anthony Green smacking the taser out of the young officer's hands and then grabbing for his gun belt and trying to grab for his gun. The fight continued violently for eight seconds, at which time Anthony Green got up from the officer and went behind him as if he was going to run away. The officer believed the entire time that Anthony Green was armed because during the foot pursuit, Green had continuously moved his arms from the running position to the front of his waistband. He spun around and raised a right arm directly towards the officer with a black object in his hand. Officer Green, in a millisecond, believed that he was about to be shot by Green, drew his handgun, and fired seven simultaneous rounds from a distance of 10 to 15 feet at Green until Green collapsed to the ground. Police quickly converged on the area. But unfortunately, it was subsequently determined that Green was, in fact, not armed with a handgun, but with a black cell phone. As a result of an investigation by the district attorney's office, Officer Presley was charged with both voluntary and involuntary manslaughter and violating his oath of office. And that's where this death investigation begins. With me today is forensic animator Scott Roeder, and I met Scott when I was the defense expert in police practices and human factors during the criminal trial of Officer Zachariah Presley. Scott is a forensic animator who founded the Evidence Room in 2002, and he was the original innovator of forensic animation design. Scott specializes in crime, accident, and shooting reconstruction, and he belongs to a variety of professional organizations, including the International Homicide Investigators Association and the Crime Scene Reconstruction Association. You've probably seen Scott on ESPN, where he's been a media consultant, and as well as the Science Channel, and uh, with Dr. Henry Lee and Dr. Cyril Weck in the prevention of officer-involved deaths. We welcome Scott Roeder to A Threat of Evidence. Hi, Scott. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Hey, no problem. I mean, what a fascinating career. Uh, and you're still kind of in the middle of your career. And what an interesting a career choice to be a forensic animator. So why don't we tell our team members on a thread of evidence all about forensic animation and what does a forensic animator do? Sure. Uh, I mean, it's similar to any other type of criminal or, you know, law-based, science-based investigation uh, where you're, you know, using your logic, your common sense, your training, your experience to gather evidence 
uh, from the record of some type of a legal proceeding, in, in most cases, criminal or, or civil. Um, I do probably a little bit more civil than criminal. Uh, and you know, using a proven methodology, uh, we take the information uh, that's given to us to build a computer 3D CGI model. Uh, and once that's built, it gives us a platform to uh, reconstruct the evidence uh, in a very tangible way uh, so that we can demonstrate through a forensic animation on a purely independent scientific basis what we think happened to, uh, for the benefit of the jury in a visual animated uh, presentation. Um, and when I started the company back in 2002, I felt like there was a real need uh, for an independent uh, scientific approach to these types of visual uh, presentations to a courtroom. You know, previously, before forensic animations was even a thing, it was just demonstrative evidence. And those oftentimes could be directed by the, uh, by the lawyer. Uh, and that's, as we all know, lawyers make arguments, they're advocates. And as an independent expert, I don't advocate, I don't have an ideology. Uh, my only ideology is the evidence and the truth. Uh, and uh, I try to let that reflect in uh, my methodology and process of putting together these reconstructions visually, you know, for the benefit of the jury and the court members. And hopefully the truth will be um, a bit more clear as a result of it. Well, you know, there's so many different facets of, uh, of CSI and forensic uh, investigations. And of course, at, at our forensic death investigations team, we have 26 different experts in homicide, violent crimes, every area of forensics. I mean, you name it. So what made you select this particular area of CSI and forensics to get involved in? Well, I, I don't know if I selected it or it selected me, you know, well, I'd love uh, to hear the story. <laughs> you know, when, when I, uh, uh, you know, I had always been a photographer uh, and uh, self-taught uh, when it came to uh, uh, 3D modeling and animation, you know, being 49 years old, I kind of grew up with uh, technology, um, you know, and as and, and being a you know not to plug any kind of particular brand of computer but it kind of grew up with a you know uh, with with this whole process of uh, you know technology being integrated into all aspects of my life and uh, you know I kind of combined the the photography and the process of doing uh, uh, photographic evidence collection uh, with the Cleveland Police Department as a young man, as a young father, still going to school. Uh, and that was back in the days when police departments had uh, the, the mini little cameras, you know, that they would take pictures at the crime scene and then they'd, they'd drop them off to the 24-hour uh, photo, photo lab at the mall. And then that's how they get their crime scene photographs. Either that or if it was a large enough police department, they might have had an actual photographer there to take 35 millimeter film and have a processing lab to develop the film. Uh, so I kind of came in and uh, started doing that work as a uh, uh, as a student photographer uh, with the Cleveland Police Department, and uh, I realized that you know although I was a pretty I'm still a pretty good photographer, I was better at analyzing the evidence, and you know it just kind of evolved uh, over you know, from the age of maybe 18 to 26 
uh, where I just got more involved in the, uh, the legal aspect and, and the reconstruction aspect. And, um, you know, I kind of just let it take me from there. And it's really been an interesting journey. I've been involved in a lot of amazing cases. And, you know, hopefully the last 20 years of my career that I've been doing this, um, you know, it's becoming more of an accepted science. And, uh, and uh, you know, the jury members certainly respond to it very well. Uh, the judges are now, you know, expecting this type of technology in the courtroom. And, uh, uh, you know, it's my job to, uh, you know, let everybody know and educate them as to the process, the methodology, why it's a trustworthy medium, why it's an actual scientific discipline and, and not just, um, you know, some cartoon. Well, you know, let's talk about uh, let's talk about the actual applied science of this. And you're throwing out a few terms that I'd like to get you to better uh, discuss and explain uh, to the audience. You know, you're talking about CGI and you're talking about 3D modeling. Well, let's start with one. What is CGI? Well, CGI is computer generated images, and uh, you know, uh, essentially when you know, we build an environment, um, say, for example, take the Presley case. Uh, that case happened 99% of it outside, right? Uh, so uh, there was, it's important to be able to grab the topography, uh, go to the scene, take physical measurements, maybe throw the drone up and take photographs and videos, uh, which, which we do on a very regular basis. And then um, we take all of that data to build our exterior environment and this is the platform that we then uh you know start our reconstructive process so we're taking a look at several components to allow you to put together a forensic animation and of course uh being on that case with you which was the first time i'd ever met you before yes. uh i looked at of course in my preparation for the case of course i've got to look at everything a huge uh, body of evidence so we have a dash cam we had uh, cctv surveillance as the vehicles went by a couple of buildings uh, during the pursuit uh of course we had uh, you know, body cam video, which was because it was so darn dark and the body cam video didn't necessarily, wasn't necessarily a really good infrared type of body cam. Uh, some of that was lacking, uh, obviously the dark environment, but we also had witness, uh, the witness statement who the primary witness was Officer Presley, uh, who we determined was the victim in this case, instead of Mr. Green, even though Mr. Green got shot, he was far from the victim in this case. And then uh, we looked at the way that the Georgia Bureau of Investigations had taken a look at this case and uh, you did your reconstruction, I did mine. Uh, you had to look at the autopsy, I had to look at the autopsy. There was a lot of different uh, moving parts here, wasn't there? Oh, absolutely, and I think that's all, most oftentimes the case is, um, you know, it's the totality of the evidence. It's the full body of all of the evidence that really paints the picture. And not to use an old tired analogy, but it really is like putting together a puzzle. And some I, of the puzzles uh, pieces are missing, aren't they? Well, sometimes they are. And, yeah. and sometimes the puzzle pieces uh, that are missing are extremely important. And sometimes they're but I would say negligible. Right. Um, and I get that a lot of times in cross-examination, uh, you know, where they'll try to, you know, ask me a very vague question on cross, 
you know, something to the effect of, uh, well, uh, if, uh, you, if, if you're making a pie and you don't have one of the ingredients, do you still have the same pie when you're done? Mm-hmm. I said, well, it depends on the ingredients, you know, uh, that's critical. <laughs> you know, you can still have a blueberry pie as long as you, you know, so blueberries uh, might have a different topping to it. Uh, but, you know, I think a lot of those arguments fall flat um, uh, when, when they're just trying to, I think, attack the process rather than the material. You, you and, know, Scott, what do you think, and going back to this Presley case that we just finished with very recently, uh, and thank God we got an acquittal uh, on the major charges for, yeah. uh, for mm-hmm. Officer Presley, which was completely deserving. What do you think the most challenging part of your end of that investigation was? And I'll share some of mine with you. Well, I think uh, the most difficult part was uh, analyzing, uh, doing my video analysis uh, of the body camera footage. Uh, you know, one of the things with regard to this case, I mean, you're, you hit it right on the money uh, in your intro. Uh, it was a very dark area where they were running. And, um, and, and, and the body camera is situated in, in a place like kind of in the middle of the chest or up on the, you know, but it's below the chin nonetheless. Correct. So it gives you uh, a little bit of a distorted angle of what's happening. Uh, and then also the light was horrible. Uh, we had to put that video through a number of different uh, applications to intend to, to attempt to augment it for clarity. Uh, because what I wanted to do was to use the video uh, body camera footage as a baseline foundation for the animation. You and, know, and, yeah. and, and I'd like to get back to that with you, Scott. We're going to take a little break, and I want to get right back to that body cam because that was fascinating the way that went down and how that was interpreted by both of us. So you're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist, and my special guest today, Scott Roeder, who is a forensic animator. And you're listening to A Threat of Evidence on America Out Loud. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. That's the truth behind the Black Lives Matter movement and the war on police at Amazon.com. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older. Until now, Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. 
You're listening to Dr. Ron Marknelly and my special guest today, Scott Roeder on a thread of evidence. Scott, we were talking when we took our first break, we were talking about that body cam uh, evidence and how challenging that was. Why don't you just continue down that road? Sure. Uh, you know, like I said, one of the first things that I tried to do was create a baseline of what physical and forensic evidence that we had that was tangible that I could use to create my portion of the reconstruction. And the body camera footage was uh, was the, the best evidence that we had to look at, but it wasn't very good. Um, so we had to go through many, many steps to attempt to augment it. I finally got the body camera footage to a point uh, where I could uh, determine uh, where Mr. Green was versus Officer Presley uh, during the uh, the foot pursuit. Uh, I used the background. Um, you could see in certain portions of the of the body camera footage that there was a background of like some stores in the distance. Correct. So I used that as like my horizon line, so that whenever I saw that horizon line of these stores lit up in the background of this really dark environment, I knew that Officer Presley was faced in that direction. And when that, when that facade of the, of, the, of the storefronts was partially obstructed, I knew that Mr. Green was in front of Officer Presley. Yeah. Uh, so it gave me some really key moments to, to lock in on, and I call those keyframes in the animation where you're not extrapolating, you're not interpreting, you're uh, bringing those items in as facts. Right. Uh, and you don't timeline. And, and a couple of the things, and I, uh, because we were both witnesses, we did not get to hear each other testify. You testified the day before I did. Uh, and I testified for pretty much most all of the day. Uh, but I, I will tell you that one of the things that uh, I had to bring to light and, and your work in the case really helped was identifying whose shirt that was on the body cam. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> right. If you remember, because the, the district attorney's office had actually, and it's interesting, you mentioned about, you know, we've got, we've got some objective evidence but sometimes people try, people who are advocates, which are attorneys, uh, they, they try to spin things and try to misrepresent what those things mean. And in this particular case, the district attorney was trying to misrepresent what those striations were on that dark background. Right. And they were obviously Mr. Green's T-shirt pressed up against the focal lens of the body cam. I concur. Right. And then uh, the other thing uh, was they were trying to misinterpret what the body mechanics were in the kinesiology of, uh, of Mr. Green while he was spinning around and trying to suggest that Officer Presley didn't have an objectively reason, reasonable uh, belief that actually a Green presented an eminent force of deadly threat. Well, I, I don't know if they misrepresented it or they just didn't understand it. Uh, well, I think possibly, that's a good point. Yeah. I, I took it a little differently. I yeah. thought it was deliberate. <laughs> well, you know, and I don't want, I hate to disparage uh, anybody, but when I was being cross-examined on this particular case, I found the questions posed to me on cross were incredibly um, not, let me just put it this way, they were not based on any piece 
of physical and of forensic evidence. Yes. Uh, the questions were just kind of loopy questions trying to uh, take away the validity of the reconstruction and not talking about the actual pieces of evidence. And, uh, you know, I get into that quite a bit when I'm on uh, cross-exam, and I'm sure you probably do too, uh, where, you know, they, they want to talk about everything but the evidence, everything but the bullet trajectory, everything but the muzzle of the target distance. And they want to talk about all these things that are not based. Now, your job is different than mine, obviously. You know, I base mine just yeah. on the physical and forensic evidence. I don't make opinions as to good or bad or objectively reasonable. That's right. outside of my well, you're doing, you know, you're doing the applied science related yeah. mm -hmm. to the, the, the recon, the forensic reconstruction and animation. Uh, I it go in there and I identify and I argue the evidence and Correct. what, what is pertinent to the case with respect to the elements that are being charged against the officer. What do those elements exist and what are the, what are the evidence supports, uh, the allegations of the state or the exculpatory, uh, you know, defensive statements made made by the officer uh, through his defense team, and right. so you know, in, in my case, uh, I had to I had to call them out on on a couple of occasions and uh, be able to explain properly uh, to to the trier of fact, which was a very diverse jury, what was really taking place there. And I thought the judge, at least in my case, uh, the judge was uh, very respectful of what I was doing. Uh, he allowed me, uh, I would say, a good deal of latitude as long as everything that I was saying was factual and forensic and was backed up. Uh, he allowed me to make some significant inroads uh, with that jury that I think really assisted the case. But your work in that case, Scott, was I, I thought was uh, extremely important to give me even a better context of what was happening there. Well, thank you for saying that, but this is how I would equate it. So you're Dr. Ron Martinelli, and I'm basically like a mechanic. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so I appreciate you, you putting me even in your ballgame. But what I see my role as in, in this kind of a thing is exactly what you stated, is I just go on the meat and the potatoes, I put things together so that we can see what the objective evidence actually looks like when it's all put together in a moving environment in, in, in time and space. And then you get to interpret all of that because obviously your brain is much bigger than mine. Uh, no, so, so as I do my, my, my mechanical <laughs> reconstruction, you know, I enjoy the fact that I play this role in the cog of the machine. I'm a sprocket. I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a gear, I'm a hinge. And so that I can give this objective evidence in a format that not just you can interpret, but that regular people, the bus driver, my grandma, my next door neighbor, that they can understand it in a way that applies yeah. to their life. And, and you know and that's what? what? I feel like my job is absolutely. And, and you know, we, we both are educational uh, witnesses. I think that's what we're sort of referred to before the trier of fact. We are educating the jury on the nuances of applied science and, I mean, a whole host of things. I have to deal with uh, police practices, but in, in there I have to deal with human factors and psychophysiology, and I have to deal with the kinesiology, ballistics, trajectories, you know, all of that, the environment, officer safety, the laws. I have to do a lot of that, but ultimately it has to be supported. So, you know what, let's, let's pop 
let's pop a mystique right now and I think let's have a discussion about the difference between what the focal lens picks up with a forensic instrument like a body cam as opposed to what the human eye does. Why don't you talk about the focal lens and I'll talk about the body? Well, I mean, the, the focal lens is, is picking up a limited amount of information. Uh, and it's not just about the lens, but it's also about the frame rate that exactly. the camera is running. You know, so we all know, you know, all of video is, is a series of still frame images. And if you've got a really super cool camera, like for example, I did a, I did a, a reconstruction for a television show for, for my old episode of 48 hours, um, that, that I anchored, uh, in 2018. And we had the benefit of getting what's called a phantom camera which shoots at 5000 frames per second it's ridiculous it costs that, ten thousand dollars a day to rent that's you know. crazy because right. that's, that's yeah. one end right? so, so listen so compare and contrast that why don't you tell our audience how many frames per second the body cam was that that officer presley had 10 <laughs> yeah amazing so, okay, so we, go from 5, 000, we go from five thousand to ten frames so you can imagine how much more you can see with a ten thousand you know frame uh camera as opposed yeah. to you know a ten frame camera yeah it's fa it's really amazing the, the kind of how the when we bring when we introduce technology into the real physical world the organic world you know what it it picks up what is going on but it doesn't it doesn't really experience, you're not really getting the whole experience, you know, yes. um, because, you know, and as you'll go into all of the senses, it's not just what you see, it's what you feel, it's what you smell, it's what you perceive, it's, it's what you sense, you know, yeah. uh, and yeah. the body camera footage is just one tiny little peek into what it is that the officer is experiencing. So, you know, sometimes it might be the best evidence that they have, but, you know, it's a challenge because I, it's, it's my job as a video, also a video analysis expert to explain to the jury that this is just capturing just moments in time. And the human body can do so many things that's outside of the range of what the camera is going to catch. At Absolutely. And I'm so glad you're bringing that up because this was a, a situation with the officer literally had, when I ran everything back and did some timestamps and things, the officer literally had milliseconds or hundreds of a second to make a determination in the dark. Well, the uh, reactionary gap rule. Oh my God. And after yeah. being knocked uh, you know, basically knocked on his head mm -hmm. and, and being dazed and, and having literally the fight of his life uh, with this guy, Mr. Green was under the influence of cocaine and, uh, and he was he crazy. He was body. absolutely crazy. And, well, you know, uh, and here's one thing, uh, doctor, is, yeah. you know, uh, Officer Presley was exhausted. I did this calculation uh, based on the body camera footage, the streets that he was passing, uh, and I used a whole series of, of, of data and information to collect it. He actually ran, and I'll just correct you just minorly from your introduction, 425 yards <laughs> from the point that he left his vehicle to the point that uh, they had their uh, tussle, you know, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and and it and I calculated that Officer Presley ran at a speed of 14 miles per hour during that entire to, pursuit. Yeah. during that entire pursuit. Yeah, yeah, with 28 is, pounds of gear. Right. Why don't you discuss with us 
How did you begin your methodology for your forensic animation of that officer-involved shooting incident? Yeah, sure, Ron. Uh, you know, as I do in every consultation, the very first thing I do is, you know, review what I consider to be the best evidence in the case. And in this case, it was the body camera footage. There was some excellent photography uh, from the uh, police department uh, that uh, did the uh, investigation on the case. They did a pretty good job on uh, collecting photographs and making sketches and, and doing some measurements. I had to uh, duplicate those measurements, um, you know, uh, for my own you know, verification. Uh, but then uh, I built the environment, you know, based on all of that data. Uh, and then I, uh, you know, went through the autopsy report and I did a, a terminal ballistics uh, analysis of the uh, gunshot wounds uh, that the, uh, 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 the subject had sustained. Uh, reviewed uh, Officer Presley's uh, statement and his, uh, you know, body camera statement after the shooting, as well as uh, there was some footage of the uh, of the police pursuit itself. Now, let me ask you a question for a second, Scott. Sure. Did you have an opportunity to listen to the forensic interview that I did with Officer Presley, as opposed oh. to because he really didn't give you know a, a statement uh, with the with the GBI or the Georgia Bureau of Investigations, and you know that ended up being a little bit of a problem. Uh, because, you know, people expected him, to, you know, to give a statement. You and I know is that, you know, police officers are just like any other citizen and they have Fifth Amendment rights. And it's not a good idea to give an initial uh, comprehensive statement because of stress memory recall. Right. So, and also the Garrity rule oh, uh, gives the officers the ability to uh, kind of step back, decompress uh, for a moment, yeah. uh, you know, before that. Uh, now, because, you know, the, yeah, yeah did you hear my interview? I did, yeah. I, okay. I did not get to hear your interview until a little bit late in the game uh, because originally um, as you know, the final uh, reconstruction that I did kind of fell short of some things that I just didn't have anything verifiable for. For example, I had verbal descriptions of um, you know, how people were standing and where they were standing, but not to the point where I had full articulation of the human bodies as they are in front of each other. So when I got your report, literally two days before it was due, I was like, okay, this is genius stuff. By the way, your work is fantastic. Oh, and you. I was able to utilize the, the photographs and the interview that you did with Officer Presley. And that's really was the basis uh, for that very ending part of my reconstruction uh, uh, that I presented in the court. So, um, you know, I think what I had done originally, what I intended to do, expanded upon my review of your report. Well, I can already see that one of the challenges was that you didn't get that forensic uh, interview, which was an audio interview, of course, mixed with a lot of photographs that I took of Officer Presley to try to get the body mechanics. And that was, you know, more or less to sort of assist you right. uh, in because I knew that we were both going to testify. I figured it was too late for you uh, to make any adjustments. But, you know, what other what other challenges did, did you face in producing that? Well, um, you know, I think the biggest challenge was augmentating or the augmentation of the the really dark body camera footage and, you know, trying to, you know, paint the real picture of what was happening, trying to illuminate, take that darkness away. 
to give the jury the ability to see um, you know something more tangible than just shadows uh, and uh, so that was definitely a challenge and I think that we we addressed it uh, conservatively uh, in the favor I think almost of the prosecution because I was being so conservative I didn't want to stretch my opinion outside of what I thought the evidence you know really was telling me uh, but even in that conservative analysis uh, it was still very beneficial for Officer Presley. Yeah, and you know what? And you mentioned something that, that I caught on, which is really important for forensic experts, and that is staying in your wheelhouse. Oh yeah, I, I <laughs> yeah. think that forensic experts, and I don't care what discipline uh, they're involved in in their area of expertise, you've got to stay within the fact pattern, and you got to also stay within your wheelhouse. And when you start expanding and start moving out of that wheelhouse, that's the first time you're going to get in trouble. I guarantee you. Yeah, and I to expound on that just a little bit, Ron. The uh, you know, oftentimes there's pressure uh, from your client, and, and and in this case, or in any case, not I'm not saying there's pressure in this case, but it's sometimes you feel kind of a loyalty, and you know, our job as experts is to be supremely objective, exactly. and being able to come back home to your office and take the emotion totally out of everything that you're doing and just stick to the evidence and it sounds easy you know it's kind of like one of those old uh, you know football coaches where they say you know what's the secret of your success do your job <laughs> you know and right. uh, you know the secret of I think objective testimony is no emotion but so, you know and nice. it's a learned and, and uh, I appreciate the fact that you said it's difficult because it is difficult yeah. uh, because you know experts if they don't watch themselves uh, they can get emotionally captured with a case or they can get emotionally embedded in a case and uh, and, and you can't do that what I the way I look at it is uh, you know I'm nobody's advocate I'm an advocate for the facts and evidence as best right. that I can determine however if the facts and evidence support whatever a client is saying then that's just icing on the cake, uh, because that way you can you can speak uh, very directly, very transparently, and you can also fight for the facts uh, on behalf of, of a client who deserves that good fight, because right. the other side is trying to spin it, and we certainly saw that you know in in the officer uh, you know Presley case at least. Uh, during my testimony, the other side was constantly trying to spin and minimize and mitigate uh, what was going on and all of the actions of Anthony Green. As we say, let the silent voices be heard. Shadow banning, editing, censorship, blocking, and adherence to political correctness are seen as serious threats to our God-given right to free speech. Suppressing free speech, the very cornerstone of our society, is not in the best interest of our listeners, readers, and those who provide our content. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. So, you know, what was it like as a forensic animator to give testimony during uh, basically a homicide trial? Well, I mean, not the first time, you know, uh, I'm a grizzled veteran, uh, so I've done this many, many times. 
But, you know, I, I think of it like uh, getting your at-bat in a baseball game, you know. Um, you just want to have a good approach. Uh, you want to, uh, you know, kind of know what pitches are coming. And, and uh, uh, you know, not every time you're going to hit a home run. But if you have a good approach and if you, you do your job right, uh, I think it usually works out well. Uh, you know, I think a lot of times when I get cross-examined, there's a lot of personality stuff that happens in the dynamic between the questioner and the questionee. Uh, and there is, you're right, a lot on the line. Uh, somebody's freedom, uh, justice, truth, um, the Constitution of the United States. Everything's on the line when you've got these things hanging in the balance, but you have to wash your head of that and you know, be confident in what you do. And you know, I've got a, not a very good memory, so that really helps me to not lie about anything because you don't have to remember what you know. You know, you only have to remember lies, right? right. So, uh, you know, I felt very comfortable testifying on this case. Uh, I think the prosecutor was you know, a little snippy, you know, trying to minimize the science aspect of what I do. Correct. I to right. turn me into an advocate. And I just flat out said to him, I'm like, listen, you're an advocate, sir. <laughs> you know, it's funny you said that. I'm not an advocate. That's the same I'm discussion. an expert. That's the same discussion that I had with him. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think the jury ended up, at least I, I found out at the end of the trial that the jury really resonated uh, with uh, with what I had to say, and especially the science and explaining the science. And I'm sure that, that you, at least what I heard is you did an admirable job on that case. And uh, I got a few I, high fives in the hallway. Yeah, you know what? <laughs> and that that's what it's all about when, when you have your peers uh, and there was a lot of police officers uh, standing yeah. around there. Yeah, you know, if they you were remember. very. Yeah, yeah, they were. <laughs> I tell you what, that, that's one of the most rewarding things about the job is that you know I, I really respect you know police officers and what they do and putting their lives on the line, and as well as every citizen out there in the United States that might have a good or bad encounter. We all have equal rights. Um, but then when you do a good job, whether it's on a case where you're representing a private citizen or on a case where you're representing a public employee, like a police officer, um, and when they acknowledge your effort and the success, uh, or, you know, the competency, uh, certainly of, of what you've done and, and, uh, they shake your hand, it, you know, it feels, it feels good, uh, you know, that you played your role and, and yeah. hopefully, you know, you've given the jury enough information to do yeah. their job. Absolutely right. And, uh, you know, for our audience, uh, what happened at the end of the Officer Presley case is, is that he was acquitted of both voluntary manslaughter and involuntary manslaughter for some strange reason, which I'm unable to determine, uh, but the defense team is appealing, is they did convict him of a, a Georgia statute that is titled uh, violating your oath of office. And I found that just very incredible because at the same time that a jury is telling uh, telling the judge that our client is not guilty. In other words, it was a justifiable homicide. It was tragic, but it was a justifiable homicide. They are somehow uh, telling the judge uh, 
with, with the same, in the same breath of air that the officer had violated an oath of office and they convicted him for that. And, and I think that's, you know, jury nullification. But then I've got a, another show on a thread of evidence with our forensic psychologist, Dr. Joni Johnston, uh, and we're talking about jurors and the jury mindset. But that's, that's a, a discussion for another time. Listen, you worked on one of the more high-profile cases in the world uh, just uh, just a couple of years ago, and it was the Oscar Pistorius case, and he was a very uh, famous, uh, internationally renowned uh, decathlete, uh, Olympic uh, Olympic quality uh, decathlete, and uh, he had gotten uh, he was being prosecuted uh, for homicide, where the defense, his defense, was. Uh, justifiable due to self-defense. And, and what I'd like you to do is just tell us a little bit about this case uh, and, and what your participation was and give us, for those people that don't know about the Oscar Pistorius case from South Africa, uh, which makes it an international case, uh, you were called into that case on, on the yeah. criminal defense side. Why don't you discuss that case with us and what you did in that case? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I was the only uh, American involved on that case. And um, this was a period of time just prior to the death of Nelson Mandela. And uh, I stayed in South Africa for quite a substantial period of time on a couple of occasions. Uh, the first occasion to uh, collect evidence and to work with the legal defense team and work with Oscar Pistorius himself. Um, now, I had not known who he was prior to getting a phone call as I'm in Connecticut at the University of New Haven School of Forensic Science doing a IAI uh, bloodstain pattern uh, uh, class that I was taking at the time. I get this phone call from this odd number, and it was uh, uh, Oscar's uncle who called me and uh, I'd been referred to him by Dr. Henry Lee, and uh, uh, so they hired me on as their uh, forensic crime scene reconstruction expert and uh, a forensic animator, um, qualified as, as both in, in, in many jurisdictions. And uh, so I flew over there, and it was a you know it was a really interesting case for me. It was not my first international case, but going to South Africa in Johannesburg at that particular time. It was just, you're not in Kansas anymore. I mean, you know, I've, yeah, phoned, I've been to London, I've been to right. London, I've been to Australia, I've been to Korea, you know, I've been to almost every single state in the United States. Uh, but landing in Johannesburg was a different kind of thing. And it was a, uh, an odd thing for me because I was really in the spotlight. They had me on the cover of In Touch Magazine, Africa edition, uh, in the corner. And where the cover is like Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt, <laughs> to, uh, the Africa <laughs> edition, the Africa edition of Time Magazine did a four-page article on me, referring to me as the Pixar of murder trials, and uh, I have that on my wall, by the way. Uh, and uh, uh, so, uh, working in that case, you know, the same they don't have the same rules as we do in American justice, and it, the, uh, I don't want to get off track because I could talk so much about this, but as essentially, uh, it was uh, Valentine's Day. Uh, Eve and Oscar was with his beautiful girlfriend who was also a model and celebrity uh, and Oscar was, came from a Kennedy type of family but with the popularity of like a LeBron James uh, kind of uh, athlete thing you know and so his billboards were everywhere he was a philanthropist he was a very educated man uh, he was born without bones beneath his knees and uh, he had been retrofitted with these blades uh, which was his nickname, the Blade Runner. He was the first disabled athlete to qualify for the regular Olympics. Right. And he competed 
succeeded in it. He was Correct. on the and that was his, show. That was his claim to fame. Yeah, and he was good. And he was a really sweet, sweet kid. So uh, uh, the, his defense was not self-defense. Oh, okay, His Go defense ahead. was that he thought the home was being burglarized. And there was this tragic circumstance of his girlfriend and him were laying in bed. And they live in this home that's surrounded by walls with barbed wire on the top. And it's not to keep the lions out at night, okay? Right. And uh, although you can hear the lions. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, it's a a land of disparity. You are either wealthy with servants or you are a servant. Uh, I drove, you know, I spent a lot of time there. I spent time in these little shanty villages where I taught a bunch of kids how to play baseball. And yeah, it was really amazing. The people of South Africa, really beautiful people, really gentle and kind. Uh, but there was there's a there was a political movement going on at the time as well, and it was a lot of repercussions against the white population in power. Uh, and even though they didn't have the presidency, they were still in power. Uh, so it was a very tense time. I couldn't go outside without a, a armed bodyguard because I was an American. Um, so anyway, uh, the defense was uh, Oscar gets up, he hears something in the middle of the night. Uh, the window in his bathroom on the second floor screeched open. And uh, he had had threats and burglaries before, and people were kind of, you know, living on edge. He grabs his gun, and he's, he's saying, Riva, Riva, call the police. There's somebody in the house. And he's going down this corridor. It's perfect marble floor. And as he turns the corner, the bathroom door shuts. Bam. And now he thinks the burglar who got in through the window, because there was a ladder down there from earlier in the day where workers had been changing um, some shingles on the roof of the house. And he thought, oh, somebody used that ladder to get into the second. Now they're here, and now they're locked in the bathroom. And then he heard this, Reep! and he was tense and on his stumps and poised, holding the corner as like a shield for cover. And he heard that sound, pop, 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 four shots right through the bathroom door. And then he goes back, Reva, call the police. Reva, call the police. But it was Reva in the bathroom. She had gotten up out of the bed and gone to the bathroom in the middle of the night while Oscar in this pitch black room went to go bring these giant fans in from the patio to close the blackout curtains because he had the sleep apnea kind of thing and he needed it perfectly quiet and perfectly black. Well, you know, it's interesting. And that's why I call it the, the, the theory was self-defense. He wasn't defending himself against the girlfriend. He was defending himself from what he perceived, at least with his uh, representation, uh, were home invaders, one of which had been in, in the bathroom. So and I believe, what was, let me just finish one thought. I believe yeah. on this case, um, sympathetic reflex response was such an important issue. Uh, and for the viewers out there, for example, if you ever take your kid to the doctor and they make the kid fold his knee and they take that little, that little bone thing and go bing right. on the knee and the knee kicks, right? That's right. like a sympathetic reflex response, but that's a physical one. There's also a mental sympathetic reflex response that oftentimes happens with police officers and other people in highly tense situations where you're just so poised and have so much adrenaline that you hear a sound and it triggers it you know, or a movement or, a, you know, uh, based on your training and experience or fear, even or the perception of fear. Correct. And that was kind of, uh, was my interpretation about why he actually fired the weapon. Was it negligent? Yeah. He ultimately was found not guilty of murder. Uh, he was found guilty of ultimately, um, culpable 
uh, manslaughter, which is like involuntary manslaughter. Probably would have got five years for that. Uh, but so he was assigned uh, to ultimately to a um, medical facility for uh, for six months and then home arrest for the rest. Wow. But the no, government on appeal appealed the verdict, which you can't do in this country. The government can't appeal a verdict. But they did. And then, then and so he's actually still in jail today on a original uh, sentencing of six months house arrest. Wow. Now, part of the, correct me if I'm wrong, but part of the story was, is that he and the girlfriend were going through some, some real problems and she was going to leave him. Was that not part of the story? That was gossip because there was no evidence of that. Here? Yeah. Yeah. There was no evidence of that. Um, okay. These were young, beautiful, high profile people. And they dealt with young, beautiful, high profile people, athletes, celebrities, football stars, rugby stars, soccer stars, Olympians, all that kind of stuff. So there was a lot of chit chat and you know, rumors, very gossipy kind of stuff. But um, you know, this, nobody ever saw this, but, when I went there to do the home inspection, very soon after the murders took place, I think the murders took place in February the 14th, uh, and then I was there uh, February 20. I was there that fast, uh, which usually isn't the case. And um, uh, But I found a photograph, a collage, that Oscar had made of pictures between him and Riva. So I found the collage that Oscar had made. He never got to give it to her. It was this beautiful like 30 by 40 inch little poster board with all these pictures of him and Riva. Um, so yeah, I think he's still much very in love with her and she was in love with him. So I don't know about the, the rumors. That's not my area of expertise. But uh, in any event, uh, there's going to be more about this story. I'm appearing in a 30 for 30 ESPN documentary about Oscar Pistorius coming out sometime in 2020. And uh, if they, people are a fan of that show, they'll be able to see me on that when it comes out. Well, fantastic. Listen, Scott, talk to people. I'm sure people that are listening in our audience that are interested in forensic animation. And of course, you know, we've got a lot of people out there, especially young people that, you know, don't want to go into the law enforcement side and may be looking at forensics and forensic animation uh, as as a as a career path, especially if they're really good with computers and graphics and like playing video games and things like that, why don't you tell us uh, how a person would go about educating and grabbing some experience to move towards a career path as a forensic animator? Absolutely. The first thing is never stop being curious. Uh, if you are a if you're a young person and you're a curious person that uh, might be the career for you, but you also have to be a jack of all trades. This is not just about technology. This is about having a depth of experience in the law, having a depth of experience in training in science, and also understanding modern technical art and the ability to communicate facts through images. And uh, there's some great places out there. I think if you know if you have an aptitude in high school of you know biology uh, and uh, uh, logic-based uh, education, um, and then if you're looking for a, an undergraduate program, the University of New Haven School of Forensic Science, the Henry C. Lee School of Forensic Science in New Haven, Connecticut, is a tremendous undergraduate and postgraduate program. Uh, New York University also has a fantastic one, as well as uh, uh, Florida State 
uh, has a very good undergraduate uh, uh, forensic program. But you know, the key is you have to be a jack of all trades. I started off as a photographer, self-taught on animation. I worked as a uh, paralegal, uh, and uh, then after I uh, uh, started working with the police department as a photographer, and then uh, so it's really this triangle of knowledge of law, science, and art. Uh, all coming together. And that's what a forensic animation is. Well, that's fantastic. Listen, I'm sure that people that are listening, and hopefully uh, some of the people that are listening are attorneys, maybe you can discuss with us how people get a hold of Scott Roeder. Absolutely. I've got a website that I try to update as much as possible, and that's evidence-room.net. Evidence-room.net. People can also email me at rotor evidence, R-O-D-E-R evidence at iCloud.com. So as you can see, you know, I work internationally and also domestically in the United States, everywhere from Alaska to Florida to LA to Cleveland. And, uh, uh, you know, you can get a hold of me on my website uh, through my email and a pretty easy guy to find if you just type in uh, Scott Rotor Forensic Animation. Well, thank you so much, Scott, for being a part of a thread of evidence and letting people have an understanding of what a forensic animator does. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and death investigator, and my special guest today. And by the way, a new forensic death investigations team member, forensic animator, Scott Roeder on America Out Loud.